How are you? Hey, I am doing great. We got to spend a few extra days at the beach this last week, and Shelly and I did something at the beach that we have never done. There is a river that runs through town and uh, obviously makes its way to the ocean, and we have never been on that river. And we took our kayaks Mm. down, and we kayaked uh, about a three-hour stretch of that river, and it was awesome. It wound through farmland, and there's lots of cattle out there, and so lots of, well, you know cow manure smell at times. But beyond that, uh, it was it was very lovely, lots of birds and uh, just beautiful scenery. So we got to see our little neck of the woods from a whole new perspective. It was great. That's awesome. So you're saying a river runs through it and you went on a three-hour tour. A three-hour tour. That sounds like that must be a reference to something and I don't oh. get the reference. <laughs> um, a river runs through it is the name of a movie. And... A three-hour tour is the refrain line on the theme for Gilligan's Island. It is on a three-hour tour that they shipwrecked and ended up on whatever island they were on. Uh, so. I missed the Gilligan's Island reference. I got the uh, you know, River Runs Through It reference, but eh. all right. You clearly had a sheltered childhood. You know, we didn't even have a TV until I was five years old. And the only reason we had a TV is to watch Blazer games, uh, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> well, the love of sports stuck with you. So that's good. Oh, it sure did. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But how are you? I am doing well. I am in this time of massive transition in my life. Uh, I have stepped down from being a pastor at the church I was pastoring at. I may well become a senior pastor at some point in the future, but for the moment, going to be doing some coaching and things like that at our local nonprofit, The Refuge. And I am, I guess I am processing change because you don't process change in one moment, right? It, it kind of hits you at random moments and you have thoughts and feelings and you just kind of have to take them as they come. And I am in the midst of all of those thoughts and feelings. Yeah. And it's funny because even if you feel like you've dealt with a particular feeling already, it seems like that feeling keeps coming around and you have to process it again. So Yeah, absolutely. I, no, it's it's funny. So I am a I love Skillet, the band, and particularly their like power ballad stuff. Um, yeah. is some of my favorite worship stuff. And one of the reasons I love it is because like the Psalms, the power ballad genre is emotionally broad. And I was listening to one of their songs on the way over to where I'm recording, and the tone of the song brought up all sorts of feelings that I have about this transition point that I hadn't really thought that much about. I mean, I had thought I dealt with them, and then I thought I had moved on, and so they were kind of, I felt like I was done with that. And clearly they are still in there, uh, Hmm. which is fascinating to me. Yeah. Man, I know you're really in the thick of it. Um, You know, we are, my family and your family, we are meeting up in less than six days to be on vacation together. And so I'm really excited to just spend that time with you and channel our energies in a new direction. I know. I'm super excited because 
you know, it's going to be at time of recording and therefore time of vacationing. It is going to be the beginning of August and we have opted to go to Arizona in the middle of August. And I just think that that's brilliant of us. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we chose a house with AC, so we might record like 15 episodes on our trip. I, we'll see. Because <laughs> that'll be the only thing we have the energy to do. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. Uh, uh, well, well, hey. My, our dear listeners, message us and ask us how our vacation was, because by the time you're listening to this, we are back and at it again. But- you didn't call to talk about vacation. So what's on your mind? Yeah. So I texted you a while back and said, hey, I want to talk about Psalm 130. Just like you had texted me once upon a time and said, hey, I want to talk about Psalm 86. So I gave you an opportunity to uh, look that over. And I'm hoping that that intrigued you sufficiently to sit and talk about it. So I'll be honest. I reread Psalm 130 after you said that. And I can't say that it sufficiently intrigued me. What I can <laughs> say is that I felt like as a follower of Jesus, it would not be appropriate for me to say, no, I don't want to talk about that Psalm. Um, <laughs> I guilted so, you into it. <laughs> uh, passively so, yes. You didn't attempt to, but that is how it <laughs> happened. Uh, because I, when I first read this Psalm, it felt very simple to me, and I really just glossed over it. And your invitation to read deeper really has resulted in me thinking far more deeply about this psalm than I ever would have on my, on my own. It's one of the huge benefits to me of reading and then discussing with a partner. Mm. I knew I had to have thoughts, and so that demanded a level of reading from me that I wouldn't have done otherwise. And so I'm exceptionally grateful for the opportunity to discuss this because it forced me to read well. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation, but I'm especially excited because it didn't strike me at first. I'm especially excited to hear what hit you, what intrigued you. Uh, so what was it about this psalm that made you want to talk about it? So my answer is rather ironic because I also was not immediately drawn to this psalm. I chose it uh, for a variety of reasons. One, it's one of the psalms, songs of ascent, psalms of ascent. And I knew we couldn't do a summer in the psalms series without talking about at least one of the psalms of ascent. Uh, two, it's a lament psalm. And I think the idea of lament is really fascinating. In fact, like I told you, the commentary I'm reading of the Psalms has only a select few lament Psalms as its content. And so it was one of the few that my commentary addressed. And so I thought, oh, this is an opportunity for me to dive deep into this commentary. And the lament idea doesn't really fit very well with the other themes of the Songs of Ascent. And so I just found it to be kind of an outlier, and I think outliers are interesting to talk about. And so none of that had to do with the content per se. It was all just like lining up as, hey, this would probably make for an interesting conversation if we dove in. And I'm actually really excited because of all the work I've done to dive in since then, I completely agree. But I have lots of questions still, and I really want to wrestle with concepts. 
That's awesome. I am delighted to be able to dig into one of the Psalms of Lament, especially because this is a part of our worship, the emotional palette of our worship that isn't always present. Yes. Um, you know, I, I was just mentioning Skillet's power ballads. And, you know, it's funny, the song I was listening to on the way here that had me thinking all those thoughts was such a perfect setup for this conversation because it's this song that's called Valley of Death. And it really is this ballad about how sometimes things don't go the way you want and sometimes you realize you're older and didn't get where you aimed to go. And sometimes you can't see where you're going next. And so, God, I hope you're there. End, mm. of, end of song. It's a heavy song. And I am grateful for anything that explores that side of the emotional worship palette, uh, if that makes sense. It does. And so I'm intrigued, actually, to ask you how you read this psalm, because my commentary dove in and was kind of saying, listen, the Songs of Ascent are a hopeful, joyful sort of theme. There's various interpretations of what Songs of Ascent mean, but kind of the prevailing notion is that these were the songs that were sung as people were making their way to Jerusalem, particularly for various festivals or the Feast of Tabernacles in particular. And as people were making their way to Jerusalem, they were ascending the hill to the temple. These were the songs that were traditionally sung. And there's this hopeful, we're going to the place of God's salvation sort of idea that permeates all of these songs. And the authors were even saying this, the, the idea of a song in particular all throughout the Old Testament is a joyful, hopeful thing. The Old Testament knows very little about songs singing lament or sadness or something like that. They sing to inspire hope and joy. And so their contention is that this is, despite its theme of sin and forgiveness, it's really focused on the joy of forgiveness and the hope of depending on God. And so they take a lament theme and put it into a song of joy, is their argument. How does that strike you as you read this? I think there's a little bit of both here, right? Which is one of the things I think we've touched on at various points is that you don't have in your heart positive feelings at one moment and negative feelings at another moment. Sometimes there's a, a real mix of them. Now, that first line, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, that is a heavy line. Yeah. But it's not as heavy as, say, so I recently preached on Psalm 137. Psalm 137 opens with, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Mm. That is one of the heaviest lines in the Psalms, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. There is a, an emotional exhaustion in that line. Whereas this is maybe two steps less than that, but it's the same 
I am going to be deeply influenced in this conversation by the fact that I was just listening to a power ballad. Um, <laughs> and I am not sure that that is good or bad, but like the song I was listening to was a heavy but hopeful song. It wasn't, mm. man, the world is awful. It was, I really need you. And I am, you know what? Here's the word that this isn't. Maybe we can explore the emotional tone of this song by saying what it isn't. This is not flippant. Right? That's so true. This is not, like sometimes in some religious traditions, phrases like praise the Lord are said almost flippantly. I'm not sure we're even thinking about it. And I don't mind the habit of trying to train ourselves to praise God for everything, and that's delightful. But there is something almost hallmarky or simplistic about certain kinds of worship. And this isn't that. This is very emotionally layered worship. Yeah, I would agree. And I think to bring in that joyful, hopeful tone, I think this is that first line, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. I don't think the psalmist is saying, in this present moment, I am in my depths and I am crying to you. I think this is saying this is a truism. This is something that mm. when I am in my depths, I cry to you and thank God you hear me. Thank God that you forgive me. Thank God that I can continue this ascent toward Jerusalem and your salvation because you are faithful you have met me in my depths, and you will always meet me in my depths. And that is, again, still not flippant. That is joy and celebration rooted in some deep experience of God. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, we use the word truism with a bit of a negative connotation. And I don't think that's what you mean. I think you no. just mean this is a general state of affairs. Uh, right. A, a norm. And I think you're absolutely right. The observation that this is a song of ascent means this is not being sung. Like some of David's psalms are historically tied or, or grounded in a specific set of events. This psalm is grounded in the experience of worshiping God in the midst of reflecting on a previous event as you go up to Jerusalem. Mm. So there's an extra layer of historicity or, or an extra layer of history, uh, kind of like, okay, this is going to be a weird analogy. Do you remember the introduction? Uh, maybe to Gilligan's Island? No. No, clearly you don't. That's a hopeless cause. Uh, <laughs> there is a great biography of... Benjamin Franklin by Walter Isaacson. And he talks about how Franklin's own autobiography of himself has these layers of historical Franklin. There is the Franklin in the story. There is also the Franklin that is in dialogue with his son and therefore writing this biography. But then there is also the Franklin who is editing it for more broad consumption and so there's these layers of Franklin that you experience in the biography. And I feel like this psalm invites us to have those kind of layers. And maybe that's part of what makes it a not flippant psalm. Mm. 
Yeah. If you want to know what it means to be a person who's in the midst of worship, it is okay to be reflecting on past life and pulling that into the story of the present moment, which is funny because a lot of times we might think of that as our minds wandering. So this is fascinating. I really love your idea of layers because I see those layers playing out in this text and nice job pulling in a, you know, historical biography into this because that's, you know, something we love. But have you read that book, by the way, Isaac, Benjamin Franklin? I'd have to look. I don't know if I have or not. I know that I have wanted to read it. Okay. I will go back and look to see if I have. But your analogy holds true because the writer of this psalm is using his own autobiography of calling out to the Lord and crying for forgiveness and being met with forgiveness. He's using that not just as an autobiography, but as a teaching moment for all of Israel. And I think Mm -hmm. that's why... That's why this shifts in verses seven and eight to an appeal to all of Israel. You know, listen, in light of all of this, O Israel, put your faith in God. He is your salvation. And so it is, it's it's the autobiography of remembering his former self who cried out to the Lord. And it's his present experience of being joyful of having been saved and his future anticipation of the same, and his corporate display of that so that all of the people will do likewise. You know, and there's something to be said for a mature pedagogy here. Mm. Teaching or preaching about God himself needs to follow this psalm, right? It needs to start with my experience, which I will then reflect deeply upon before I use a teaching moment to invite someone into. I'm not saying it has to be that exact order, but I think that those elements have to be there. There needs to be depth of experience before there can be depth of teaching on this level. 100%. I, sorry, you just totally nailed it. I preached on Sunday and my sermon was part autobiography of things that God had taught me and part exegeting a text that related so significantly with that. I felt that uh, that being a powerful teaching tool in the moment. And so, yeah, I completely relate. And it's actually, you know, Andy Stanley's formula, me, we, God, you, we. Uh, uh, yep. And that's, for those that don't know, that's Andy Stanley's approach to preaching. Me, I start with my relationship to this topic. I bring on the we to show that this is a universal thing. Then I expound what God has to say about that. Me, we, God. And then again, with you bringing everybody back into the text. And then we, us, What? how do we respond? And so me, we, God, you, we just has that same flow that you're talking about. Well, and another great example of this in kind of practical experience, uh, my denomination has a fine arts competition every year, and one of the categories is a short sermon that you can preach. And so there's all these teenagers who are preaching these short five to seven minute sermons, which I think is a great idea. I think that's wonderful. But three of our students at the church I, I just left 
qualified for the national competition. And I went to one of them and said, hey, would we have this kind of testimony spot in the service since you did such a good job. Would you be interested in doing your sermon for the congregation in the testimony spot? And he looked at me and he goes, I'm 15 years old. Why would you possibly have me preach? <laughs> to which the answer that was in my heart was because you just said that. Yes, right. But, but I think he is implicitly believing the thing that we're talking about, about good teaching, which is that I don't have the life experience to back up what I'm saying. Like, what are you thinking? Mm. But I want to jump in. Can I change thoughts real quick here? Yeah, go for it. Okay. I think this hits you as well. But uh, we talked recently about the idea of the soul, right? As the sort of life center, all-encompassing source of life for the person. I don't know that I'm capturing it well because the whole point of our conversation was it can't be well captured in English. Right. But as I read this, it says, I wait for the soul. My soul waits. And I have some thoughts actually based on some things you've said so far. But what do you think that means? Because it seems to me this is the crux of the psalm. If there is something we want to aspire to or grow towards in the context of this psalm, it is the skill of waiting for the Lord. Mm. Yeah, and, so and, go ahead. that's awesome. I totally agree. I just want to correct. I think you uh, misquoted it. It says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And I think you oh, said soul. You oh, said, I, I wait I for wait the for soul. I wait for the soul, my soul waits. And I was like, oh, ah, I don't think that's... <laughs> that is, yes, uh, thank you for correcting that. That was a transposition in my mind as I was trying to talk into my microphone while glancing to my right and trying to see my Bible. Yes, yes. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I wait for the Lord, or in this case, I wait for Yahweh, my nephesh, my soul waits. And yeah, I think the Hebrew brings out a really good aspect of this in that the waiting is in the PL. And so it's got this iterative sense to it, like I wait and I wait and I wait. It's not a passive sit back and wait for the train to arrive. It's anticipatory. It's got action. It's got movement. It's, it's an eager anticipation. And so oh. there, is, there is a lot of us put into it. And so that's, I think, again, my nefesh waits my very depths of me, my essence, my whole being anticipates actively the arrival of the Lord, because that is my salvation. And I, especially as you put it into the idea of the songs of ascent and the, the sense of anticipation as the temple mount comes into view and the hills are in view and you are anticipating being immersed in the presence of God— and enlivened by his presence in the temple, like, yeah, that's an active sort of waiting. Mm, that makes sense. And this seems to me to be an intriguing, I think it is my sense that the idea of waiting in the Bible almost transcends our concepts of active and passive. And here's why. Abraham was waiting for God to fulfill his promise. 
And I, as I read this, like there is so much of an echo of what Abraham demonstrated in terms of waiting. God promises you're going to have kids. He is waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. Eventually, he stops waiting and takes it into his own hands with his wife's uh, maidservant, Hagar. Mm. And that is the failure to wait, right? He needed to wait, and he instead failed to wait and tried to do. And it short-circuited the promise. It didn't abort the promise, but it sure fouled it up. Absolutely. You're not passive in the sense of you're sitting on your couch, twiddling your thumbs, or you are, you know, you're just kind of bored out of your mind. In some sense, I actually wonder if it is sort of like waiting for a train in the sense that when I'm waiting for the train, I am watching for the train to show up. Like I am actually quite actively waiting because Mm. I don't want to miss the train. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I have missed the train. Like uh, I remember one time I was taking a class in Boston, and every time I went home, I had to take the last train home. So if I missed it, I was going to be stuck in Boston. I didn't even dare put my headphones in. Yeah. Because I was like deeply concerned that I was going to miss the train, and then I'm stuck in Boston and I've got no solve. So I would be like watching and waiting and making sure I was in the right place and asking myself if I was going to hear the announcer from here. And I mean, I was on almost hyper alert because I wanted to make sure I caught it. But I wouldn't have done better if I started running down the train tracks in order to get home. Mm-hmm. I needed to yeah. sit and wait. But I needed to sit and wait, use the word anticipation, with anticipation and with confidence. The train's coming. And yeah. Any anxiety I would have about, is the train coming, would have been silly. The train is coming. This is not a problem. Yes. That's a brilliant analogy, and I'm glad that you turned my uh, negative example into a positive one. And I think it illustrates even what the psalm is saying, because it continues on with this idea of waiting by comparing it to you know more than a watchman for the morning. And it even repeats that. It's almost, there's, there's something evocative about repeating a phrase well, especially Over. in light of what you said about what the PL means, you know, you repeated yourself in your definition of waiting when you were describing what the PL means. I think you said iterative. I wondered as you were saying that if the author is trying to capture the emotion of the PL with his language. Mm, I totally think so. And I think even the analogy that he's using, the metaphor that he's using of a watchman in the night. I mean, these were the city watchmen. These were responsible for keeping watch over the safety of the entire community by watching for enemies who would sneak around at night. And so there is this anticipation that even though I'm waiting for the dawn, I'm waiting for a moment where I don't have to wait anymore, I have some active responsibility in this moment of watching actively. I have to keep I have to keep watch. Just like I really like your analogy with the train. I have to keep watch in order that I don't miss it. Just like a watchman has to keep watch so that they don't miss the enemy lurking in the shadows. Well, and this is I wonder the degree to which this speaks to what we were talking about in a previous episode. We were talking about what it means to hear from God, to be led by God. And I wonder if the primary 
answer to how to hear from God, or one of the primary metaphors in the Bible on how to hear from God, is this idea of active anticipatory waiting. Hmm. I think that's really, really hard for us. I don't disagree. I actually think you're right. But I think that's, one, a spiritual discipline that everybody has to work on. And two, mm-hmm. I think we're starting from a disadvantage in our society where everything is instantaneous. Mm. You know, when I was a kid, we had cameras with film in it that had to get developed. When my kids were little, I would take a picture and they would immediately run over and want to see it, which I thought was an odd experience. And so on and so forth in our society, things happen so fast. And so for us to pray and watch in anticipation for the answer makes us feel immediately like we're not going to get an answer. Well, or it it jacks up the way that we even ask the question. The number of times when something is deeply weighty in my heart, my prayer goes from, God, please do something about this, to, God, please do something about this now, Mm. rather than, God, I know you're going to do something about this, but I am asking you to do something about this, but I'm willing to wait. The more important something is, the more I want God to act immediately. And that doesn't jive well with this language. I think it's why this psalm begins with this grounding exercise of looking at the leader's you know, autobiographical example to say, look, God does this sort of thing. This is the kind of God we have to depend on. So put your trust in God because he has done these things and he will do these things, even if in the moment you don't feel like he is doing those things. Mm. And I think this is one of the most important habits we need to practice. And I think music is a really valuable tool for it. In the midst of whatever emotional experience we're having, taking time to ground ourselves in the relationship we actually have with God is so important. Mm. And doing so in a way, the thing I like about music, you know, we always say, well, music is easier to remember and whatever. And that's true. But the thing that's more important to me is that it is evocative, you know, because this comes back to. How do I wait for the Lord with my soul rather than just with my mind? Music helps me do that by helping me draw my whole self honestly into the moment of waiting. Yeah. Again, if it's an evocative song that captures this sort of somber but optimistic tone. Well, one of the other things like, that I for love example, of- a power ballad might. Yes, right? But what I really like about this example here as a song of ascent is the corporate nature of singing this song. This isn't just me wishing myself into a particular trance or state of mind or what have you, or a particular feeling. This is me corporately experiencing what it is like to trust in Yahweh together as a body. This is our story. It has proven true in your life and in your life and in your life, but it has also proven true for us as a people. 
And because it is proven true for us as a people, God is dependable for me and for us still. Singing that together has a whole nother layer of reinforcement to it. And the other piece of this that's corporate and I think really important is the reason I would call this a worship song and comfortably place it in that space is because the hero of the story is clearly God. Again, comparing this to the, I have a playlist of Christian songs that I run to. And this morning I was running and listening to some of those songs. And a lot of them are, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to overcome. I'm going to prove it because God is with me. And so I'm going to do this. That is dissonant with the tone of this psalm. Mm -hmm. This psalm is far more a God-centered psalm. God is going to do it. I'm going to wait. God's going to do it. I'm going to wait. That's it. You're right. And I think that's one of the things that you get oriented to in all of the psalms. And man, you're picking on modern worship music and it's focus on the eye. And man, I just want to go on a rant right now. Uh, but you said it eloquently and dispassionately. And so we will leave it at that. Well, And to be clear, actually, the songs I was listening to were not modern worship songs. They were just modern songs, modern Christian songs, but not, they weren't trying to be worshipy. But even in the Christian non-worship songs, and again, art is fine. You can do what you can write whatever you want. I don't care. But I am recognizing that my intake of Christian songs needs to have a significantly greater I wait on God rather than I take action message to you use this great word about how it orients us. If I am going to reorient towards waiting, I need to fill my head with songs that are about waiting, uh, which, yes. by the way, I don't know any. So if you are listening to this right now and you know some great songs that resonate with some of these themes, this is not just a pitch for conversation. Like I would genuinely love to know some modern songs that either emotionally or conceptually work with this theme. Yes, I completely agree, because I think we need it. I think we need songs that orient us to waiting, and I think we need songs that orient us to lament, because these are elements that are not prominent in our society, but they're prominent in Scripture. So it is going to take immersing ourselves in the Psalms or immersing ourselves in modern songs to orient our minds towards something that our culture does not value. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a good opportunity to just generally welcome the audience into this conversation. Uh, you can join us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and threads, and let us know. How does this psalm speak to you? What is your experience with lament? What is your experience with waiting for God? And uh, continue to add to this conversation. And if this episode or any other episode resonates with you or you think it would be a blessing to somebody else, please share this. We want this podcast to be a blessing to lots and lots of people. Yeah, please share it. And uh, we would love to hear your stories about this. Someone recently shared a story of one of the ways that our conversation impacted their lives, and it was really encouraging to us. And so we would love to hear that. Feel free to post that or direct message us. We would love to hear it. 
Yeah, 100%. So Josh from Missouri, we've been talking about Psalms this entire time. I would love to know what else you've been thinking about, Psalms related or otherwise. Uh, This is not Psalms related, though it does not go far in the canon. I just finished Christopher Wright's book, Hearing the Message of Ecclesiastes, Questioning Faith in a Baffling World. And I absolutely loved it. I wholeheartedly recommend it. I find Ecclesiastes to be a very complicated book to read devotionally, particularly because if you read little bits of it, it doesn't work. It is a book that is trying to be a whole message rather than a bunch of little pieces. And one of the key things he says as an organizing metaphor for the book is that we should understand the book of Ecclesiastes as a quest, a quest for wisdom. And so the author is going from place to place, sort of conceptual place to place, trying this out, exploring this, wrestling with this idea all the way along, just trying to bring together two things. First of all, what faith promises us, and second of all, what experience shows us. And any honest examination of those two things, the promises of faith and the experience of the world, will admit that they are hard to fit together. And Ecclesiastes, especially as you walk through it with Christopher Wright, gives us some real handles on how to grapple with that tension. And I was really grateful for that because I think that there's a real tension there. And admitting that that should influence the way we read the Bible is really important. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it was Christopher Wright or some other scholar that basically summed up Ecclesiastes like this. They said all the other wisdom literature in the Bible basically says, try this, it will work. And Ecclesiastes says, we did and it didn't. Ah. And which I think is a wonderful balance of truths to have in scripture, right? These things are both in scripture. On the one hand, yes, generally speaking, these things work. On the other hand, there are life experiences that make it feel like all of this other stuff is to put in doubt. And what do we do with those experiences and these promises? And how do we live faithfully in the midst of them. I, so I love that God put both things in Scripture. Yeah, that's exactly it. He encourages the reading of Ecclesiastes in conversation with the broader canon of Scripture. And even the way that that enlightens his understanding of how the canon works, I think is fascinating because this is exactly what he's saying is, on the one hand, there are bits of the Bible that would seem simplistic to the author of Ecclesiastes. And the author of Ecclesiastes affirms those simplistic things, but says they're not enough. But then Mm. the, so Ecclesiastes has like one person who is the author of most of the book, then a narrator who writes a beginning and an end and sort of frames the whole thing to be understood within our kind of creational monotheism belief system. Just like the internal editor is saying those things are too simple if you take them by themselves. They're true, but they're not the whole truth. The final editor 
says what that guy in the middle was saying is also true, but it is not the whole truth either. And it's this invitation to a broader conversation with what God reveals about the world throughout the rest of Scripture. And I, I really like that understanding of how to engage the Bible. Mm. But yeah. what about you? What if you? Oh, do you have more to say about that? Oh, I could talk endlessly. Well, let's go ahead and drop it. Okay. Well then, uh, since you don't want to talk endlessly, let me ask you what you've been thinking about. <laughs> well, I have a very simple thought this week, and it is just that I love my church, like legit mm. love my church. And my kids, my family legit loves our church. My daughter has had the most amazing summer ever. And so she's been on trips with her friends and she's been house sitting for people and she's just been away a lot. And she has had a blast. She's had a great time. But when we got together as a church family this last Sunday, and it was a whole five-hour church family event at a a farm. We had all kinds of tents and games set up, and we did a baptism and a worship service and all these different things. And it was just a really sweet time to gather as a community. And literally, my daughter, well, we all got back into the car and we're just like, that was so rich. It was so good. But my daughter, especially because she's been gone so much, she's like, I missed my community. These are my, this is my community. These are my people. And, you know, we were all reflecting on how. This church is so intentional and people show up to engage with one another and to engage with this Trinitarian God who loves us dearly. And we got to celebrate some baptisms and it was just so rich. And it was like, you know what? This is as good as it gets. I, I we're all thrilled to be a part of this body. That's so good. It really I have nothing is. else to say about that other than that is wonderful. And I am very happy for you that that's where you're at with that. Us too. Uh, we've been at some good churches. We've been at some stinkers. This this is just a, a thousand percent the best church we've ever been in. We just love it. That's so, so good. So good. All right. That brings us to the Witch Josh question. And this week, we want to know, which Josh once transported illegal drugs for a living? <laughs> that would be me. Sort of. I am. Okay, explain yourself. I, I am making this sound a lot fancier than it really was. But at the church I worked at previously, there was a strong recovery focus, and a lot of folks who were coming out of recovery and a number of recovery houses associated with the church in a number of different ways. And so church staff would end up with illegal drugs more than once in a while. But at least at one point while I was there, I was the only person who did not have a former addiction. And so when the drugs needed to be gotten rid of or dealt with, it was always my unofficial job to be the guy who brought them and got to wherever they needed to be brought to be gotten rid of. So mm. I would end up being handed drugs and be told, hey, can you take care of this? <laughs> and just hope you don't get pulled over in the process? Is that the idea? Yes, I did several times. I was like, hey, just please make sure you're ready to answer your phone. Because if I get pulled over, I need somebody to back me up here that I'm not doing this illegally. Yeah, right. Right. Like, please, I don't want to get arrested for this. 
That's all right. You just moved to Oregon because in Oregon, it is not illegal to have a personal amount, a personal dose of pretty much any drug. That's perfect. I am sure that that is a boon to the community. It's not how I voted, but it's how other, others voted. And so that's the law. Yeah. Sometime we'll, we'll have to talk about following Jesus in a system based on voting. Whew. That is a good topic and a scary Neither topic. of us wants to talk about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's have a, uh, you know. Not that conversation. Yeah. Let's have a conversation of a different sort next week. How about it? All right. Sounds good. I'll talk to you then. Okay. Bye.